It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Wise Money is brought to you by the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran, and Keene, First State Bank, Diane Bennett, and the Inspired Team at REMAX 100, and Bethel College's Adult and Graduate Studies Program. Welcome to another episode of Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. Thanks for being with us today. My name is Mike Bernard. I am your host. I'm also one of the certified financial planners on the show. With me in the KFG Studios, certified financial planner and one of my friends, Josh Gregory. Good to be with you, Mike. Hi there. Mike, how often have we said that cash is the lifeblood of a business? Cash is king, for sure. That's right. But how often have we also seen businesses at various stages of their life cycle who have maybe great opportunities ahead of them, but they're starved for cash and they can't go pursue them? just had an example this past week. Yes. That's That's why it's so important to have a great working relationship with a banker that can help you access capital when you need it. And that's also why we're excited to welcome, for the first time, Sheila Gordy from First State Bank to discuss the banking tools and resources needed for a small business. All right, we've got that. And oh, I'm just going to apologize right now if you've been submitting questions. We're going to get to a bunch of them today, but I've got quite the uh, queue, if you will. So got that and a lot more coming up. If you have questions, keep sending them in. You can do so a couple different ways wisemoneyradio.com. That's how you find us online. You can submit a question right there on the right. You can call or text 574-222-2000. That's 574-222-2000. Lastly, social media did get a question uh, recently on Facebook that we're going to be addressing later today. So you can find us on Facebook. You can watch every episode on YouTube. You can find us on Twitter as well. Just search Wise Money Radio. Sheila, thanks for coming to the program today. Thanks for having me. So we are wrapping up a short series about how legal issues impact your financial life. And really, for the past two weeks, we've been talking about um, the legal issues of a small business, succession planning, and, and so on. And and that's why we're excited to have Sheila on the show today. Uh, I know how important it is for small businesses to have a great relationship with a local bank, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But before we dive in, why don't you introduce yourself, Sheila? Great. Um, my name again is Sheila Gordy, and my husband Jeff and I live in Elkhart, and we have um, three children. Um, we have um, uh, my oldest daughter is 26 and just had a our first grandson in October. Um, I have a foster daughter who will be 23 next week. She's stationed in Jacksonville, North Carolina at Camp Lejeune. Just had a baby last Thursday. Wow. Grandchild number two. And then I have a son who is 22 and lives in Elkhart. And so um, we're pretty blessed with a full life and just looking forward to being grandparents. So um, That's awesome. Yeah. And um, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I love working with small business owners and really helping them build a legacy. um, And really, that is their retirement. So this really fits in with what I'm passionate about. I've been in banking for 30 years. I've only been at First State for two years. I was at another bank for 28 years before joining the small community bank, and it was just a, a perfect f- fit for me and a transition for 
um, the next stages of my career. So I'm happy to be a part of their team. And the individual that you've kind of took his spot, he retired. He was a great friend of mine, yeah. great friend of ours, Jack. And so yeah, big shoes to fill, but it sounds Absolutely. like you're filling them really yeah. well. We, we had worked together previously okay. and so remained friends for all those years that he was at First State Bank. And he's loving his life down in Florida right yeah, now. That's so, right. That's know. right. Okay. So we've already talked uh, for or touched on for just a second how important a relationship is with the local bank for small businesses. So in your own words, why is that so important? Why is that so critical? Well, there, there's so many reasons, and we could probably spend a, all morning just talking about that. But um, first of all, because you business owners don't know what they don't know, right? So there's going to be a need that comes up at some point as they their business grows and transitions. And that relationship with a, a business banking expert is so critical. So the number one mistake that a lot of businesses make is they just know the branch team. And so branch team, that's great for the retail part, making deposits and those types of things. But when it becomes um, questions about expertise on, on commercial lending or how do you grow your business to the next step, you really need to have a connection with um, they, they're called business bankers, commercial lenders, relationship manager, whoever that expertise is that can help them um, really um, help them grow their business. That's interesting because I often think of uh, a banker as just access to a loan, right, or, mm-hmm. or some sort of capital. But you're describing them more as uh, really an advisor to you. You guys get to peer into a lot of businesses mm-hmm. all day, every day. So I'm sure you've got a lot of best practices and things that you've learned from other businesses. And uh, do, do you spend a lot of time kind of coaching up your customers that are small business owners or do you let them drive uh, whether or not they're seeking that help from good you? Good question, Josh. Yeah, it is a good question. Um, you know, the term trusted advisor and, and consultant is overused, but that is really what your banking partner should be, just like your your CPA, your financial advisor, and your attorney. And so all, all of those together are your, your team that should help advise you. And a, a good business banker should be helping consult on, um, you know, margins, not only, you know, what is the revenue, but what is the bottom line? So, so many people are focused on, oh, my sales, Mm -hmm. you know, I grew my sales, my revenue went up, but they're not making any more money. And so your banker should be helping you identify what are the causes of those um, items. And if you, you know, are just making your deposits and you don't really have that expertise, um, you know, sometimes you're leaving a lot on the table by, by not having that consultant. Great. That's the voice of Sheila Gordy from First State Bank talking to us about the value of uh, a small business relationship. What about this? Here's the curveball. When it comes to a home equity line on your house, it's pretty straightforward. Most of us listening, we you know maybe have had one. If you have a certain amount of equity in your house, you can draw on that using a home equity line. But with businesses, it's not quite as straightforward, yet the need, I would argue, is even greater. There are opportunities that flash up and you want to take advantage of them. Inevitably, your business will have a soft patch. And so that that line of credit is critically important. Talk to us a, a little bit about the process or how to get one or which businesses can easily get one, which businesses, uh, it's harder to get one. Mm-hmm. That is a great question. So almost every business has a need for some type of working capital line of credit, whether it be a a traditional line of credit or access on a business credit card to make purchases, you know, primarily for inventory. Um, The 
type of businesses that are, can most easily access a uh, line of credit would be a manufacturer. Because they've got yeah, collateral. Yeah, they've right. got collateral and they have a need for it. And mm-hmm. so your banker is going to do analysis on primarily on your balance sheet to identify the collateral first. And like you said, you'd mentioned a home equity. And so <laughs> that's easy. They've got the equity in right. their home. They're using that as collateral. But on a business line of credit, we're going to look at the inventory and the accounts receivable. And is that enough to cover the request? And traditionally, bankers look at, and and so do CPAs, as lines of credit as short-term liability and should be paid back in 12 months. And so we want to make sure that they can revolve the line of credit, right? It needs to be working capital, you advance, and as accounts receivable come in, you pay that back. So the process that a bank would use to analyze the you know, first of all, the need and the amount would be to gather financial information. Um, most of the time, it's going to be a minimum of two years, um, sometimes three years of, a, of tax returns along with current financial statements for the, the current year, accounts receivable, accounts payable aging. And then we're going to also look at their personal credit because in most cases, um, business owners have to personally guarantee that line of credit. And mm-hmm. so we want to look at not only cash flow, collateral, but but credit Mm -hmm. and character. And all of those things factor into the determination. And some businesses, um, especially e-commerce business, they really don't have a need for a a line of credit oftentimes because they're collecting, you know, through credit cards and their payment is immediate. And um, restaurants, unfortunately, sometimes that industry is a little bit more difficult and challenging to lend to. Right. And so um, not to say that we wouldn't, but it is more challenging to get that done. Mm -hmm. So it just, every business is different. Um, and the amount really depends on how their inventory turns, how often their cycle turns, um, and also how they collect their AR. What kind of terms do they have with their customers for payment? Are you seeing a, an improvement overall in the health of small businesses that you're working with because the economy's been clipping along so um, well for a while now? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good time to be a business owner, that is for sure. So, um, yeah, everybody's making money right now, and yeah. it's you know, and everybody's growing revenue and profits, and that trend has been continuing for gosh, you know, the last three or four years. So, you know, some people think that that cycle may be ending soon, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Well, and so the idea that sticks out to me is opportunity. And and you want to be able to jump on opportunities. I have a lot of small business owners who are looking at maybe one revenue stream or one product line that's dying down and they're building up a new one. And so you're going to want a line of credit. You're going to want a relationship with your local bank to um, to help manage that What about acquisitions? What about buying commercial property? We've got all of that and more coming up here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. For your small business, do you have an effective way of managing your cash flow? And what about fraud protection? We're tackling that and more with special guests today. Sheila Gordy from First State Bank. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. I'm Mike. Next to me, Josh here in the KFG studios. Special thanks to the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran and Keene, as well as First State Bank for making the Wise Money Show possible. Really quick, if you have a question, let me just remind you, wisemoneyradio.com or give us a call, send us a text, 574-222-2000. That's 574-222-2000. We just left off with the hairball of all small business lending issues, and that is a line of credit. I'm just going to tell you, 
go talk to your local banker and talk to the business expert, um, the the commercial lender, something like that, uh, whatever their title is to get that solution for you. What about other tools that the local bank offers, Sheila, to help small businesses? That is a great question. And one of the things that every business needs to take a look at is what we call cash management products. And that helps businesses work smarter, not harder. So for example, it takes a lot of um, work off of a bookkeeper's plate or off of the business owner's plate in how they move money within the company. And one of the things that we continue to see is fraud is on the incre- is on the rise, um, whether that be check fraud, um, ACH fraud, and just you know wire fraud. We had a uh, client that was a victim of a ninety thousand dollar wire fraud late last year. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so things that like that can really impact your your business, and in some cases put you out of business. And so hmm. you need to protect your money. And one of the things that um, a lot of business owners are not aware that banks offer is some a product called positive pay. And the way that works is you upload a file to your bank of all of the checks that were written um, in your payables run. And the bank's going to match that with all of the incoming checks. And you have a lot of different ways that you can do that. You can do it by check number, payee, dollar amount, or a combination of those and then anything that's not a match, you know, unfortunately, you know, gets returned or even if it's presented at the teller line, um, could could get declined. And so that's a way for businesses to protect um, their their cash. And um, yet they have to remember to upload the file because if they don't, we're going you know, we could potentially return. Most banks do reach out and say, hey, we had these checks that were presented that were not a match. And then the company has, you know, normally until noon or whatever the cutoff is at the bank, you know, to let us know, yes, pay though, that was a valid check or no return, that is a fraudulent item. And so just so increasingly important as the technology continues to grow and um, people are smart. And unfortunately, they look for a lot of ways to defraud innocent people. Right, right. That almost sounds like the same process of reconciling a a checking account, only you're reversing some of the order, right? You're uh, the the business is telling you what checks are floating out there, and that way you can make sure that only checks that they authorized are getting uh, getting authorized for, for payment by the bank. Then. Yeah, that's, that's right. And we also have a similar product for ACH activity, and that's called ACH Debit Block, where businesses are telling us also what companies can electronically take money from our, our checking account. They provide us the name. They provide us. There's there's a code that we work with with the the vendor to um, to know that that's how the electronic payment will be coming in, and sometimes they can cap a limit on that too, so that there's no way that they can transpose a number. So let's say if you have a uh, someone that wants to collect money from you, and and you should never have a bill that's more than five thousand dollars. You've capped that, but they've accidentally keyed in fifty thousand. That's going to be returned even though the the vendor was legitimate, the dollar amount was not. So just a lot of Mm. tools and very inexpensive. And the headache of trying to unwind all of that if fraud does happen is a real pain and very time consuming. So protect up front. Very helpful hint. In fact, I wrote down both of those for Tara to reach out to Jeff Corey to make sure that we've got that in place here. So so (laughs) very helpful, Sheila. Uh, Sheila Gordy's from First State Bank here in the KFG studios with me and Josh. 
Um, let's t- let's transition and talk about some um, transactions. So, say a a business uh, a business owner is looking to transition their business to a key employee, and maybe it's taking place over a couple of years where they're you know the key employee is going to buy a little bit of of stock and then a little bit more and so on. What is it? Just a line of credit that um, that the that the business would get, or how 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 does that transaction happen with certain tools that the local bank can offer? Yeah, that, that's a, an excellent question. And there is, um, you know, acquisitions are really on the increase, as we right. mentioned, you know, in the earlier segment that um, companies are very profitable, so they're looking to sell and and when they can, and so it creates opportunities for other people that may be looking to buy into a business. So there are so many loans that um, are available to take care of that situation. A line of credit isn't really what I would recommend because, as we said earlier, a line of credit is really for debt that's 12 months um, or less and used for your inventory and your accounts receivable. So you would want to look into a term loan to fund the stock purchase or if it's an asset purchase for the business. And there's a lot of different ways to fund that, depending on the strength of the individual that's that's making the acquisition. So we have conventional financing. And again, we would look at the strength of the, the person that would be buying into the business and the collateral that they may have to offer from personally, but also from the business. And if they can't really make the conventional financing work, we can use SBA, the Small Business mm-hmm. Administration Financing, um, great partners. There's several programs available to help make that work. And then in some cases, oftentimes, there's a combination of the um, SBA financing, conventional financing, and also what we call seller financing, where the exiting owner is willing to hold back a note um, for a portion of that. Um, oftentimes, the the struggle is for the person that wants to buy that business to come up with the equity needed to make that happen. And so all of those products can be used together um, to make it work. Mm-hmm. What, how, what about buying commercial real estate? Um, I, I, we are big believers in owner-occupied real estate. If you run a small business um, and it's feasible for you to purchase the building that you're operating out of, we we have just seen the financial benefits of that. So is that similar to just buying uh, your residential house and getting a mortgage on that? Or, or what's the process like for buying a commercial property? Uh, and it is similar in a few ways, but it's a lot more involved and complex. Um, and, and so the reason I say that is um, there's the appraisal itself um, costs a lot more than a residential appraisal, mm. and it takes a lot longer. You you would have environmental due diligence that you need to do, um, and so the the timing um, is quite a bit longer than buying uh, a home. And also, there is um, down payment requirement. You would normally need to get conventional financing. Twenty percent, you know, on the residential side, you could do FHA. Sometimes you can get in with three percent. That's that's not the case on uh, owner occupied, but we are also very much proponents of businesses owning the real estate pay yourself as opposed to paying a landlord. Yeah. Um, but there's still ways, just like on the the acquisition of a company, you can do SBA financing to bridge that gap if someone doesn't have twenty percent. So with SBA financing, you could buy that property with um, as little as ten percent down. And also, again, um, if the seller was willing, you know, maybe they would be willing to hold a portion for seller financing too. So long-term financing, you can fix 
you know, fix the rates for a longer period of time, and it just makes excellent sense. So again, we would want to analyze all of the the financials of the business to make sure that they would be able to afford the rent payment on that that real estate, and then we would recommend most of the time that they hold that real estate outside of the operating company into a separate right. entity. Right. How do the interest rates compare between a conventional loan versus the SBA loan? Is there much of a difference? There, there is in the fact that an um, there is an SBA product called a five hundred four, and with that, it is a twenty year fixed rate, mm. which you cannot obtain from a, a bank. Um, and so there's fees associated with that. And so sometimes you have to go through the analysis of that cost benefit analysis with the client to say, yes, you are paying a fee. However, if you look at, you know, hedging your interest rate risk, and you know that for the SBA portion, you're locked in for 20 years. Um, and with that particular product, the bank is a partner with the SBA. So we fund 50% and the SBA is 40%. And so our our portion wouldn't be the 20-year fixed rate, but you know at least a portion of that debt is locked in for that period of time. How long would you lock the rate? We would lock it up to 10 years. Okay. Great. Sheila, this has been very helpful. How do people get a hold of you if they have questions or need to get uh, in touch with you? Uh, they can email me at Sheila G at bfirst.bank. That's S-H-E-I-L-A-G at B as in boy, first spelled out, dot bank. Chris sent in a question about should he do pre-tax or Roth contributions. We've got that and more listener questions coming up here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Thank you so much for being with us today. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. I'm Mike, joined by Josh and Kevin Corhorn's back here in the KFG studios. Thank you again to Sheila Gordy from First State Bank from, for being with us. Listen, if that really spoke to you and you were uh, wanting some more content, go over to the YouTube channel. Uh, there's a little bonus content. We were uh, quizzing her a little bit more on uh, on some breaks. And so find us on YouTube, Wise Money Radio. Um, and you can subscribe to the episode right there. And every episode's right there. And you've got uh, all the breaks, all the special content is right there as well. Um, thank you to Bethel College Adult and Graduate Studies, as well as Diane Bennett with Remax 100 for making the Wise Money Show possible. We're about to dive into listener questions, uh, a couple that were texted over, one from Facebook. So if you have any questions, wisemoneyradio.com or call or text 574-222-2000. That's 574-222-2000. Or like I said, uh, we're starting with a question from Chris. He posted on the Facebook page. You can find us there, Wise Money Radio as well. All right. So Chris posted this on Facebook a few weeks ago. Thanks for your patience, Chris. If I missed it, please point me to any discussion about pre and post tax contributions into a 401k, benefits, disadvantages, all that sort of stuff, which I did reply to you, Chris. So you've got that info. We did a full segment on tax planning back during um, during the spring. And I don't have the episode right here listed uh, in front of me, but if you're curious about those pros and cons, we're going to get into it in just a second. But for more info, find the tax planning show right there early, uh, I believe it was March in 2018. So here's what he said. I currently contribute 7% to my 401k post-tax. My company matches 4% dollar for dollar and then contributes another 8% annually 
via profit sharing. That's a great, great benefit. All company contributions, though, are pre-tax. I'm 42 with a long way from retirement. Basically, I think Chris is asking, is that the wise thing to do? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to also define some of these terms because this is jargon. This is tax planning jargon, if I've ever heard it. Um, And it can also be um, maybe some confusion on this post-tax idea, right? I actually Um, asked him. I actually asked him. Did you? Yeah. So so the issue here um, that I'm this is getting into the minutia a little bit, but we you expect can con- that from you, Josh. Thank you. You can contribute to your 401k typically on a pre-tax basis, meaning uh, the dollars are pulled off the top. It goes into your retirement account before the dollars have ever been taxed, and it allows you to reduce your tax bill this year. What Chris is referring to is post-tax or after-tax contributions which uh, have been around for a long time, and it's a way for you to pay tax first and then contribute to the 401k so you have money in that account that's already been taxed. The problem with that approach is eventually you would pay tax on the growth. Now, in more recent years, there's a third option, which is very similar to what Chris has been doing, called the Roth contributions. This also, you tax the money first, then it goes into your retirement account. But when it grows over time, the growth never gets taxed. Mm-hmm. And so maybe Chris he is, is doing, referring he is to doing Roth. Roth. Yeah, okay. He is doing the Roth. But, that you, was, but you need to be aware of that because your pre-tax and your Roth contribution limits are a certain amount. After tax, your company might not even allow you to do that. But if you can that's even at a different limit. So, you, so yeah, not to be sticklers. That doesn't make any sense. You're confused? Yeah, I'm confused. I'm trying to follow, and uh, I am totally confused. I, so I, I get what Joshua was saying. Joshua mm-hmm. was saying, hey, if you make a dollar and you put it into your retirement plan pre-tax, a dollar goes to work for you. That's right. If yep. you want to put it in the Roth option, if you make a dollar, you put that money in your pocket, and in your pocket, you'd have 70 cents in essence. So you have 70 cents to get into your retirement plan. That doesn't work exactly like that, but mm-hmm. that's the idea. So, I, so I'm, I'm tracking with you up to there, yep. but then you said something that didn't make any sense. So the- I'm saying if I'm an average dude, the average dude listening saying, For the record, I've never thought of you as an average dude. (laughs) Slightly below average. (laughs) So if your retirement plan allows it, you might also be able to make after-tax contributions, which, like Josh said, you've already paid tax on those dollars. So you're saying three options. Right. Pre-tax. Yep. After-tax. And and so the pre-tax grows tax-deferred and all that will be taxable. After tax would grow tax deferred and all of the growth would be taxable, or the Roth, which would grow tax free and none of the growth would be taxable. That's right. Is that what you're trying to say? As, Actually, that's as what recently Josh said. as a year ago, <laughs> as recently as a year ago, I've seen people making those after tax contributions, the second one of the three that you were just describing, which is not nearly as good as a Roth contribution. You got it. And these folks had a Roth available to them. Mm hmm. So they would have had the same tax consequences in the year that they're contributing. In other words, they pay tax on their contributions and then the money gets invested for them. But the difference is 
when they get to retirement, are they going to have to pay tax on a whole bunch of growth? The and, Roth doesn't make you do that. And that is the spirit of Chris's question. Okay, if we can get back on, on topic here, is at 42 with a long way to retirement, he is contributing to the Roth portion. Okay. That's His helpful. company is doing the pre-tax because that's the only way they can do it. Should he be doing this this Roth or should he switch over to pre-tax? That is the question. What do you guys think? Well, th- th- that's that's an, there's an easy answer for that, Chris, um, at, at the end of some pretty decent uh, analytical work. <laughs> so because really what we want to do is look at your tax situation and then and then the question and I was I had this conversation with a client yesterday. I looked him in the eye and I said, "Are you a betting man?" And he said, "Depends on what the bet is." <laughs> and, and so, because really, Chris, you're 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 going to make a bet in in one way or another. There's no way to know what the what the perfect right answer to this is until you've lived the next forty years of your life. Mm-hmm. So, what you can do is you can use guiding principles and some financial analysis to determine. Am I better off doing this? A big part of it depends on what your tax bracket is. Yeah, that that is. I mean that that's where the decision needs to be made as part of your financial plan and looking at your current tax situation and what your tax opportunities are. Now, you mentioned that you're 42 and have a long way to retirement, so that does tip the scales a little bit, but you still have to look at what your tax bracket is. Well, and I'm, I'm reading into this as well. If you're 42, maybe you've got kids in high school that exactly. are getting close to the college years. What we don't know is how eligible will you be for financial aid, mm-hmm. and Roth contributions can have an impact on uh, how much income you're showing on your tax return, whereas the more traditional pre-tax contributions, that is sort of the default in most retirement plans, that can actually help reduce the amount of income that's showing up on that tax return, which is exactly what the financial aid folks are going to be looking at when they uh, paint their, their picture of your eligibility. And in, in, in the spirit of trying to avoid using numbers on the radio, your maximum contribution, Chris, is 18500 So you could put 18500 in. If you put eighteen five into the Roth side and you your income was 118500 you would pay taxes on 118500 If you put it all in the pre-tax, you would pay tax on one hundred. Mm-hmm. So right. uh, it, it maybe clears mud, but to Joshua's point, there's an ad- there may be an advantage to manipulating your income down um, for. That's why this is such a great financial planning question. Really, yeah. you, there, there's so many different angles that you have to examine this question at. Obviously, it's a tax issue, as Kevin pointed out, but it could also be um, a, a question of well. Is uh, the the 7% that you're contributing, is that even enough for you to achieve your financial goal as I, well? I love the match. I love the profit share, but you're right, Josh. Is it, is it all in together? Is that is that the right amount to be contributing? The other thing about your taxes, if your income is too high and you've got college-age kids, you might not be eligible for some credits. I had some folks come in last year who sent their first child off to college and um, and they only got part of the tax credit because they had gotten a bonus. And all of a sudden their income was a little bit higher than usual. Well, if that's the case, you're gonna want pre-tax. And whether or not you definitely need it for your retirement plan, in that case, you might even wanna contribute more so you can get more of that tax credit. All of this needs to be baked together. This is why we always preach this, that the right financial decisions for you are made at the connection of all six areas of your financial life. 
and and especially with tax laws changing now, everyone should be re-asking, should I be doing Roth or should I be doing pre-tax? Definitely. We've got a great question coming up. Uh, listener sent it in via text about how many repairs should I do for my folks' house before we sell it? That and more coming up here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Wise Money is brought to you by the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran, and Keene, First State Bank, Diane Bennett, and the Inspired Team at REMAX 100, and Bethel College's Adult and Graduate Studies Program. Thanks for being with us today. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name is Mike Bernard here in the KFG studios with Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. If you've missed anything... You can see every episode right there on the YouTube channel. Just search Wise Money Radio. A lot of banter and additional content on the breaks. And so I would encourage you subscribe to that and like it. Post any comments if you'd like. You can also find the show online, wisemoneyradio.com. And lastly, every show's podcast. So if you're if you're into binging that stuff, if you've got a a family vacation and you're all jumping in the old station wagon there and doing the the uh, Griswolds, uh, go ahead and pop the podcast on and listen to several episodes. Put Grandma on the roof. And <laughs> <laughs> we are in the middle of listener questions. A great one came from Chris on Facebook. Thanks. Uh, hopefully, we didn't get too deep for you. Hopefully, that was helpful. This next question was texted in and uh, didn't include their name, age, or location, I'd encourage you, send in your text. Send in your questions via text. But it would be helpful. Uh, share your name, your age, maybe where you live. Um, but here was the question. 222-2000. <laughs> My parents are in the process of getting ready to sell their house. They have been living in the house for 45-plus years. How much should you put in for repairs or updates to the house to prepare it for the sale? It's a great question. And a, a lot of people, when they inherited a house, they have to deal with that very, very issue. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why sometimes, you know, they don't want the hassle of updating the house after 40 years of, um, you know, styles and, uh, you know, interior decorating, going out of style, that sort of thing. It, you know, they just want to get get out from underneath this house. Yeah. Right. Um, I think it's important to recognize that most buyers really struggle to envision what a house could be. They really can only see what it is right now. It's hard for them to look past that pink bathtub or all that <laughs> wallpaper or you know the brass fixtures, whatever. The deep orange shag carpet. That's right. And the Formica countertops. That's right. That stuff was cool once, With the I believe. <laughs> I'm told anyway. With the lime green oven. But this is why it's important to work with a great realtor who can coach you on what's the the smart money, what's the wise investment into the house so that you can maximize its value. But it's possible that uh, you could you could go a little crazy putting a lot of money into a house and not really recoup that investment because the value of the house ultimately is capped by the neighborhood it's in, the houses around it, that sort of thing. Here's where you're going to be up against it as well. 
Your folks have lived in the house for 45 years. You've probably looked for at least the last 40 years at what things you would do if you ever had a chance to fix that place up. (laughs) So you're projecting and saying, hey, the next person that comes in would want to do everything I've always wanted to do. And the the dilemma with this is that the, the market, the real estate market is not static. So if you were trying to sell a house in 2010, it was totally a buyer's market. And we sold a house in 2010. And people would walk in and walk out. And then the realtor would give the obligatory, um, your house is one of their favorites by far, uh, probably one of, in their top three. And then, you, <laughs> and then you never hear from them again. <laughs> and so, uh, but, they, but people knew exactly what they were looking for and they had the, their pick of the litter because there were 2,500 houses in the MLS. Well, today with 500 houses in the MLS, you don't have your pick of the litter. As a matter 2, of fact, twenty five hundred buyers, right? Yeah. yeah, it's it is a seller's market. So I, I would really and and we've benefited from this uh, personally several times. You just have a realtor come in and say, hey, what what do I need to do to do this? And then there and then to me the question is, well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get the most money you possibly can out of the house? Because if you are, there may be some things that you need to do that would take a while. And you might say, hey, listen, can I just cut my losses? You know, if it's a a $100,000 house and you can put $10,000 into it and get 120 out of it, would you do that? Or would you just put it on there as is and take your hundred grand and 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 walk away? So th- these this is where you want to work in conjunction with a realtor, a realtor that you trust, mm-hmm. and that and here's how you know that you'll trust them. You um, look at your siblings. I don't know who you're selling the house with, but you, but you say, hey, we'll d- we're going to do everything they just told us to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I I know that. She's a sponsor of the show, so this may sound like a biased opinion here, but um, by way of testimony, I will say that this is one of the areas that Diane Bennett's team really excels. Uh, She's worked with some of my clients to sell their homes, and the advice that they come in and give on things like, you know, inexpensive interior decorating or some of the updates that will uh, help make a home um, more palatable to the the buyers that are out there. Um, it, it's just great advice. And as Kevin said, if you just take the advice and trust that they're leading you in the right direction, um, it, it will work out. And, and Diane has a team, and that, that is important because I was, I was looking at this text, and this text could have been sent from one of my clients a year ago because mm-hmm. mom and dad died, and they had the house, and the house didn't have... I don't even remember what the house didn't have, but it didn't have something that's fairly basic. That central air. <laughs> it yeah. was central air. Yeah. I remember. Okay. So it didn't have central air, which is fine if um, if you don't like central air. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're in the market for a house without central air. But that was a, it was a hard one. How, how much do we put into the house and how do we get it sold? And, and you know, Chris, or not Chris, but the, the question comes in, you're helping your parents. This, this situation was in a deceased spot. So every month. It was sort of, well, we're still paying utilities, we're still paying property taxes, so how do we get this thing unloaded at the right price with as little going into it as possible? We gotta move on, but I wanna just talk to the other side of you. One side is saying, we haven't updated this house, or mom and dad haven't for 45 years, so what do I need to do? The other side of you had just bought a house. 
you've been in a house for maybe two or three years. Updating the house and maintaining the house needs to be part of your budget. It, it does. Mm-hmm. And I just have it blocked out in my budget where a couple hundred dollars a month, every single month, goes toward into a home improvement account. And then when stuff comes up where we need to keep the house fresh, not pristine, you don't want to be pioneers with this stuff, but you need to keep your house um, relevant, I guess, so that when you do sell, what if it's a fight? What if there's a health issue and you need to sell? What if you've got to move for your job? What if you suddenly pass away and your spouse or your family needs to sell? If there's if there's this big question as to, gosh, where are we going to come up with a hundred grand to make this bring this house into modern age? No, just make it part of your budget. I know that's hard. I know it is because I've done it. It's it's hard, but. I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, Next question comes from Susan from Mishawaka. My son is getting ready to go off to school for his freshman year. So I can almost see the tears, mom. Uh, Mm -hmm. Going off to school at the end of the summer. Do I need to get some estate documents in place? I think I've heard you guys talk about that before. Great question. We just had friend of the show, Mark Crenitti, on the program from Ledoux, Kern, and Keene talking about this very issue. And and I do. We've worked with Mark for a long time. I, I know what he would say. Um, it costs money to get something in place. But that child that you're sending off to school is an adult. And thanks to all the bad apples out there in our mm-hmm. culture, everything's confidential and private. But they're still your child. And they're still in this critical stage where they're going to need help. The world's going to treat them as if they're an adult and have all these privileges and rights, but yet when they have a need, they're going to still look to you to help solve it. And that may go beyond even the college years as well. You know, when they've graduated. Hopefully not too long. That's right. (laughs) But if they've graduated, they're out into their working career, but maybe they're not married, then you may still be the person who would come to their rescue if they encounter some sort of a crisis in life, whether that's an illness or an injury or you know, some other economic issue. And you know, putting yourself in a position where you can be a true advocate for your son or daughter, even though they are an adult now, is really important. And uh, the types of documents that allow you to do that are things like a power of attorney, or an appointment of a health care representative, which is sometimes known as a health care power of attorney. That is your son or daughter legally authorizing you to help make decisions for them when they can't do it themselves. One of my best friends, sophomore year of college at Michigan State, had to call the ambulance. He was really in a lot of pain and had to go to the doctor. And, um, and his dad's a doctor, so his dad wanted to help. And he didn't have this power of attorney, so his dad couldn't help. Turned out, truth, uh, true story, it was just gas. <laughs> and, he, and he's fine. That is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for being with us. On behalf of Josh Gregory, Kevin Corhorn, and myself, we'll see you next Saturday for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated.